0: This is Rebecca.
1: Lay of game. Defense number 55. Making a move that is unnecessary and unlike football. It's half the distance to the penalty. Replay, Remember That Guy, the show where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present. Hey there, everybody. I'm one of your hosts, Cleet Blakeman.
0: Cleet, I'm so glad to be here with you. I'm Ed Lee, and I was giving them the business down there, and we actually have a special guest uh, who knows a lot about a lot of different businesses. Please introduce
2: yourself. I'm Ron Cherry. I actually do make <laughs> sure we give people the business, but I'm not the real special guest. We have an actual... Legitimate special guest
3: here.
2: Please introduce yourself.
3: I I didn't know we were having fun names, so I didn't come up with one.
1: <laughs> I'm that we came up with a third official at all. I was like, There's, we've gone through the two that I know the names of in football. Uh,
3: but I'm Jesse.
1: Welcome, Jesse. Everyone, this is my wife, uh, Jesse. <laughs> this is our second consecutive week of spousal appearances oh. following Caitlin last week, and uh, my dear, it is absolutely lovely to have you here.
3: It's also our third week of me being your wife. Officially, right now. at it's 5.40. <laughs> yeah,
1: as of, as of Monday, it'll be like three and a half. Uh, just update you, listener as you hear this. Okay, so we're going to do making memories right now, folks. And it's going to start with some massive bummers. I know everyone's been clamoring to hear from their favorite and perhaps only East Coast Spurs fan about what's going on. So Josh Primo is a piece of shit. We cut the audio of us last week discovering in real time as we recorded that he got cut. We said at that moment, there's probably something going on. If that's happening out of nowhere, they just picked up his third year option. So that's weird. Uh, And something was up. We were right. Josh Primo has allegedly been exposing himself to pretty much everybody. Most notably, I guess most, most egregiously... To the team psychiatrist, Dr. Hillary Cawthon, who is now being represented by Tony Busby. If anyone recognizes his name, that is because he is also the lawyer for dozens of women against Deshaun Watson. Houston and that area really having a moment right now. Like I said, Dr. Hillary Cawthon is the one that's coming forward about what has been happening for nearly a year now. I'm going to present the time. I don't know how much you guys have kept up with the full timeline of this. But it goes back to December 2021. The first time that during a therapy session, whipped it out. So that was bad. And she immediately went to HR. And finally, in January of this year, 2022, gets with GM Brian Wright, who is uh, not the head of the franchise, but he's kind of been set up to take over when Buford and Pop eventually dip out. And so Brian Wright gets a meeting with her. And Brian Wright recommended that they set up a meeting with all parties, including Josh Primo, so they could figure out what it was that was compelling him to expose himself to her.
3: That's not going to help anything.
1: (laughs) No, this is also right around in March when Wright gets a fawning profile in the Athletics 40 Under 40 series. And wouldn't you know it, he's very, very proud of going out on a limb to recently draft Josh Primo. It was a bit of a reach when he took him. So he's put a lot of stock into Josh Primo, this incredibly young, raw player. So within two weeks of then, Cawthon finally got involved in another meeting where nothing has happened. Allegedly, during this entire time, she's being asked to continue treating Josh Primo. During the entirety of what we're going to discuss, he exposed himself to her nine times. <laughs> uh, Wright gets an extension during this time. Later on... Coffin is going to get basically fired. In June, uh, I should specify that this is right claiming to Coffin based on her testimony that Pop was aware of her complaint and accusations and that he wanted to do right by her. That's a quote from Busby. That is hard to square with what happens next because she's informed that Primo's going to be in the Summer League team. She will not be with Summer League because uh, they don't think that she can work with the team due to a lack of trust between her and the team. Like I said, they pick up three-year option for Primo when they played in Minnesota a couple games into the season. This is when uh, it started like breaking on Spurs' Twitter because someone on Reddit that lived in Minnesota commented about a friend of theirs that they knew that worked at where the Spurs have been staying, where purportedly found out that he'd exposed himself to housekeeping. This all starts getting out. He's held out due to phantom injuries for a game got cut last week while we were doing this as this broke out because finally Wright was not going to be able to hide this anymore. This is after supposedly also some incidents in Las Vegas during that summer league when Colton wasn't there. So, yeah, all of this sucks. Brian Wright, fuck you. Get off the Spurs immediately. Like, quit. Buford and Pop should have fired him if they have that ability. Buford, as I understand it, would be the person who has that ability. He should already be fired. He should also quit. He should also fire himself into the sun. Um, (laughs) Primo's 19. He shouldn't be in the NBA. But like that, for now, honestly, is an enormous punishment. Uh, This is fucked up. And his statements from his lawyer are a complete joke. It it looks like maybe this had been hidden from Buford and Pop. Busby says he doesn't think that when they told Coffin in June... That pop was actually aware of it. He claims that's a lie. Maybe that's true. It's, I don't know, man. It fucking sucks to be a Spurs fan right now. It's absolutely horrid. I was thinking a lot about a, a related case with Sean Watson. And I don't, I don't blame people who stick with teams after life scandal with this because I've been a fan of the Spurs for not that long of a time. I've been a fan of the Spurs, though, longer than Brian Wright's been involved with it at all. You know, people who were fans of the Browns for decades—they don't have to stop being fans of it because of a decision they made. You can't celebrate it, though. And like the way that Cleveland has still celebrated having Deshaun Watson—that's what's gross about that. To San Antonio's credit, I don't live in San Antonio, so I don't know how it is in the streets. But I know online, everyone's at least disgusted by this. I don't know. I don't know how. Um, I've not. I didn't watch any of the clobbering against Toronto the worst loss in the pop era immediately following this. I don't know how much first I'll watch this year. I don't know. It all sucks. That's what's making memories for me right now. Stopping you from making memories.
0: The one comment that I would make on it, kind of just following up on what you were just saying, like we've talked about it on this podcast before. Fandom is inherently emotional and not logical, right? There's no logical reason why we should care so much about these people that We've never met, we don't really know anything about them, but we care very greatly about them putting more points on the scoreboard than their opponents. And when a case like this comes up, it, it shows just how little we do know about these people. Obviously, the, the most immediate greatest shame is that a, a Spurs employee has gone through all of this and was essentially blamed for it for like not being a quote-unquote team player, you know, just letting it persist because the team doesn't want this big controversy yeah to your point not great like there is a world where the first time this happens she goes to leadership leadership says yo what the fuck they suspend primo is this a helpable condition maybe maybe it's something that could be helped with i don't want to entirely dismiss the mental health thing that he is now claiming but it's one thing to claim it very initially, like, I don't know why I did this. It's another thing to claim it after you've done this, as you said, nine fucking times, and been enabled by the organization along the way. So I think there's
3: also something to be said about using mental health as a, an excuse or a reason, like you can deal with mental health issues. But when it starts to affect the people around you, there's still personal responsibility that just throwing the word like Oh what's my my mental health I'm going through something. like you aren't allowed to use that as an excuse. It can be a reason, but it it can't be an excuse to get out of punishments or consequences. Especially
2: not if it happens repeatedly over a prolonged period. Yeah. Even if it was one time and he was having some sort of like mental crisis, that doesn't insulate him from consequence. But 100%. the fact that it was a repeated thing makes that really it's hard it's hard to believe it's hard to believe. I have mental health issues. I know many people have mental health issues. We have bad times, but as far as I know, I have not exposed myself to anyone <laughs> one time, let alone many, and I would never blame mental health for that thing. So I was very dismayed by use of that as an excuse because I feel like I've seen that as a trend recently where celebrities or people in positions of power will do something bad and then blame a mental health thing and I feel like it puts a bad stigma on everyone who's dealing with mental health issues well you know people always make the the direct comparison between like
0: physical health a physical health issue will be more apparent right and like the the analogy here to me is an athlete could say I have a broken ankle and that's why I can't play and nobody's going to question that right but if the athlete refuses to rehab it and refuses to get surgery and is not taking any steps to rectify that issue, and they don't deserve to play anymore, right? Like, it's not like, I'm not going to just put you back out there. A physical injury is a reason why you cannot perform, but it's not an excuse to not work on it, right? So, I mean, that's just the analogy I would make. I don't fault any Spurs fans who are staying with the team. And it's so weird how when this first came out, the reaction was kind of, you know, good on the Spurs for getting ahead of this. This seems like it was a thing that, other organizations maybe would have tried to bury, but the Spurs tried to get ahead of it. And just the more we learn, the more we realize, oh, they did try to bury this and they're, they're kind of just at the very last second trying to save face. So uh, hey. not a great situation. Very, very unfortunate. And we can only hope that this will serve as an example for any future incidents Of future predators in the NBA that they will be dealt with swiftly and, you know, excuses won't be made and there won't be walls put up and obfuscation and all that.
1: Brian Wright sucks. I hope he dies.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of, you know, great things going on in the NBA world, Xavier, I think there was another thing that you wanted to discuss.
2: Well, with the NBA world, I'm glad I'm not a Nets fan, because if I was, I would be even more ashamed than James right now. I don't know how you have massive anti-Semitism issue and then say, oh, let's hire guy suspended for inappropriate sexual contact or, you know, whatever it actually was because the Celtics refused to tell us and make him our head coach. One point of clarification before
0: you go too far in. That has actually not been finalized yet. They might turn around and
2: do the right thing. Well, if they do, it's only because they got backlash. They did, wasn't, it, yeah, wasn't, it wasn't going to be. They thought that they could do it. If it doesn't actually happen, they thought that they could. Of course.
0: I, and I, I just wanted to, you know, and it, and it might be final Shoot. by Monday. And maybe we cut this whole thing that I just said. But recording. <laughs> the Nets are only very evil
2: and not 100% evil. I don't want to get too much into it because it's just such an awful situation. But if you want to know why what Kyrie did was so bad, please read the article written by Drew Majeri for Gate. It's a fantastic article. He sat through the three and a half hour, quote unquote, documentary. So you don't have to. It's really bad. There's a reason why people say it's bad. So if you need more information, please look at that. But I don't want to get too much into that.
1: The least problematic person on the Nets is named David Duke. <laughs> David Duke is the
3: chillest guy on the Nets. I mean, if we can change what the Google results are. That's his New- dream.
1: That's literally David Duke's dream. He's said Well, that.
3: we should make that happen for him.
0: <laughs> and I do also want to shout out Yuta Watanabe is a very joyful basketball player for the Nets who seemingly has no transgressions uh, so I, I would throw Yuta in there with the, the, the real David Duke. But yeah, I mean there's there's nothing that we can say that a million people haven't already said much better than us, but you know, I think I would just like to say on behalf of the Remember That Guy podcast, both my co host, fuck Kyrie Irving. <laughs> That's the official statement of this podcast.
2: You, you know, you know who else sucks? FIFA. FIFA sucks, and I want to say this now because in two weeks the World Cup will start, and because we are sports fans, especially Diaz and I as soccer fans, we will watch because we are just the peasants. We don't get to watch our teams play soccer that often, especially since the USA did not make the World Cup last time. But it is important to never forget the fact that it is an actual travesty that it's being held in Qatar. I could go on for about 12 hours about all of the awful reasons why it should not be held in Qatar. We can talk about the fact that they rigged the vote initially, the fact that they paid an ex-CIA officer $400 million to spy on FIFA, the fact that it's a country where if a woman has sex outside of marriage, she can be flagellated and then sent to jail for seven years. Homosexuality is punishable by death. They've killed 6,000 migrants while working on the stadiums.
1: They forced the World Cup into November. Like, obviously that's low on the scale. It should be the last thing on the list. But that's Uh, also an absurdly Uh, bad thing.
2: There's an article on The Athletic called What Was Promised and Was Actually Being Delivered. It it talks about the fact that there's a lot more worse stuff. But it's like, no, when they got the World Cup bid, they said that they were going to invent... Artificial clouds that can act as air conditioning for the entire country. That was part of their bid. They were going to invent artificial clouds.
3: For soccer?
2: Yes. They also said they were going to have a certain amount of stadiums, which they did not end up having. Certain number of transit, which they did not have. Oh, they're a small country and they have a million people coming to, to visit. They do not have enough hotel rooms for everybody. They have built... Fanned villages in the middle of the desert are literally rows and rows of shipping containers (laughs) that are going for $2,000 for like four days. It's just a shipping container in the desert. And they also are renting out cruise ships to dock off the coast because they cannot fit everybody. This is an absolute travesty. That is going to be overshadowed because I'm sure that the games themselves will be good and people will like them because it happens only once every four years. But we can't forget that. And the reason why I wanted to bring this up now is because a thing came out yesterday where the president of FIFA, Gianni Infantino, sent out an email to, I believe it was all the federations whose teams are coming because two main reasons. One was uh, some federations trying to get Iran replaced at the World Cup by Ukraine, because Iran has been providing drones to kill Ukrainian uh, civilians far away from the front lines of the Russian invasion, and two, because there has been a lot of renewed talk about what could happen to LGBTQ plus fans going to watch their teams, this letter, and for context, just a couple months ago, Yanni Infantino said that this could be a Nelson Mandela-like moment where they bring liberalization to Qatar-type stuff and how football can be a source of change, has now said that you should respect different cultures and differences of opinions, even when it means the quote-unquote opinion that being gay is immoral and punishable by death. So people are not very happy about that. I'm not very happy about that. Ten different captains of national teams have already committed to wearing a one-love armband that FIFA is now trying to ban. This is a bad time. And the U.S. will have the World Cup in 2026. We have our own issues, too. Like, I'm not going to try to downplay that. But this, it really is a travesty, and I don't know what's even going to happen to the fans there. I don't know what's going to happen to the country after the World Cup's over. They don't need any of this stuff. They can't use any of this stuff. Are thousands more migrants going to die trying to, tear things down and sell them for scrap. I don't know. I just want to talk about it now because I know that when the games start, people are going to be distracted, myself included. So I want to make sure that it's talked about. But this is another bummer, and I don't want to go on too much longer. Fuck FIFA. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we, we wanted to lead off with, with those negatives so that now we can wash that horrible taste out of our mouth. Diaz, what you got for?
0: Well, you know, as we as we continue down our list of sports transgressions, you know, we have organizational abuse and protecting of players doing horrible things. We have protecting and well, now finally, they have suspended their anti-Semitic player, but we have rampant anti-Semitism in the NBA, FIFA, you know, just ignoring every single red flag in the build up to the Qatar World Cup. And now we're back down to transgressions that only happen on the field. Where we talk about the Houston Astros, the cheating organization that does not deserve to have a single player that is still on their roster from sign stealing gate, and uh, who now find themselves, as we record and when this episode releases, one way or another, it's going to be finalized. But as we record, the Astros are on the brink of winning the World Series against my Philadelphia Phillies. The one thing I I need to I need to compliment to the Philadelphia crowd: there were. Boisterous cheater chants every single time Altuve or Bregman came to the plate. Philadelphia certainly did not forget. We did our part
1: there. In particular, there were not cheater rants for everyone else, just heavy booing. Like, it's not like they let up on anybody, but they'd done clearly the research into, okay, who specifically are the cheaters?
0: Exactly. Exactly. Listen, Philadelphia, the one thing we have always said about us is we are a very intelligent fan base when it comes to the sports themselves. And I think that held up. I think that held up in the three games in Philly. Tough game last night. Real tough game. God, I just wish that it was Trey Mancini was still on the Baltimore Orioles. Trey Mancini was still on the Baltimore Orioles. Kyle Schwarber's hit down the right field line. It was in the corner scores two runs, and
1: the Phillies would have gone on to win that game. Here's my one counter-argument. If Trey Mancini doesn't leave the Orioles, Trey Mancini still makes that play. He's just wearing an Orioles jersey, baby.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. And you know what? And it would bring me much greater joy (coughs) more Orioles beating the Phillies 3-2 in the World Series versus the fraudulent, cheating Houston Astros. But, you know, all that said, God fucking – Chaz McCormick, who by all accounts, I've seen a lot of people on Philadelphia Twitter and the Phillies subreddit who have like loose connections to Chaz McCormick. Apparently he's a douchebag, which, not (laughs) but goes back into Philly and makes that catch to get the second out last night. If that thing hits off the wall, JT's getting at least three bases and that's an entirely different ninth inning as well. But I've said it once. I'll say it a million times. I might be proven an idiot. By the time you're all listening to this episode. Really good. I feel really, really good about our chances going in the Houston. Uh, Zach Wheeler has had a couple down performances. Some people would say that to indicate that you know his arms catching up to him. He might be getting tired. I take it to say he's due. Wheels is due. He's gonna go in there in game six. And uh, I think we're gonna we're gonna have a hard fought game that we're gonna be able to pull out. I'm gonna say two one game six victory. Wheels goes seven innings, and we get the two one victory. And game seven, we got the calmest man in baseball, Ranger Suarez on the mound. Rangers gonna deal, and uh, Philly's gonna bring it home, and we're gonna have a parade. And uh, the parade may even be. Actually, no, it wouldn't be the day that you're listening to this. Unless you listen to it a day late. I think it would end up being Tuesday. So, stay tuned. Phillies are going to take care of it. If you're listening to this now, you already know whether or not they did or did not. But, I'm telling you right now. Go
3: Phillies. You, know what the, you know what the worst thing insane. about this World
2: Series is? The worst thing is that if the Astros win, Ted Cruz is happy. If the Phillies win, <laughs> Samuel, Samuel Alito, Alito is happy. Yeah, okay.
1: yeah, that was a big hit. The Samuel that Alito be, appearance that, yesterday. That, that made me as for see he to made lose. a beautiful diving catch. I'm like, ooh, I am torn now. <laughs>
0: well, so here's what I say, right? The the vibes plummeted the second that they showed Sam fucking Alito as a Phillies fan in the crowd. But Ted Cruz, Pandora that he is, I need to assume he's gonna be in attendance for game six and seven. So now the vibes shift back to extremely negative for Texans. You know, let's hope that uh, they don't get a cold snap there, so fucking Teddy boy, Raphael doesn't flee to Cancun again. Really, I really if he's in the building, there's no way, if there is a God, God will not allow Ted Cruz to witness the Houston Astros winning the World Series. He just won't.
1: <laughs> Phil's in
0: seven. Fuck Ted Cruz.
1: <laughs> and here's the—you can also blame Samuel Lito now if things don't go badly. Like you do have a scapegoat.
0: We 100% do. Real quick, my my Newcastle comment. October was an incredible month for Newcastle. Uh, we have three players up for Premier League Player of the Month. We have Kieran Trippier, who is going to be starring for England in the World Cup. We have Bruno Guimaraes, who will be starring for Brazil in the World Cup. But then we have Miguel Almiron, the Paraguayan. Paraguay did not qualify for the World Cup. But Miguel Almiron, for the uninitiated, when Man City won the title last year. Jack Grealish, who is everything that is wrong with soccer. Like, if Jamie Tart in Ted Lasso was not directly inspired by Jack Grealish, they are nonetheless very, very analogous. Talented pretty boys who are actually assholes And they're nowhere near as good as they think they are. Jack Grealish made a comment when he was wasted off his ass after they won the Premier League last year saying, Arez, what were you doing out there? You were playing like Almiron. And this obviously rubbed a lot of our Newcastle fans wrong. Miguel Almiron is currently, I believe, third in the Premier League in goals. He has six. Each successively got more impressive than the previous. And he is up for Premier League Player of the Month. And what is so... Heartwarming and touching about this Newcastle team. I love Bruno so much. When they announced the the three Newcastle finalists for the Premier League Player of the Month, Bruno immediately tweeted out, and by the way, Bruno, this time a year ago, spoke zero English and is now like, I would say just a slight step below fluent. It's remarkable how quickly he has learned English and how good he has gotten at it. But he tweets out, Hey, this is a great honor for me. It's a great honor for Trippier. But please vote for Miguel. He's having the time of his life, and we're also happy for him. And we want you to vote for Miguel. It's beautiful. Beautiful. The lads are being guys, and it's just wonderful to see. And Newcastle went forth. If the season ended right now, we're going Champions League. If the season ended right now. Xavier gets to lift the Premier League title. And I get to watch Newcastle in Champions League. So let's just keep that table right where it is. And let's get Miguel Almiron, Premier League Player of the Month. If you're a listener of this podcast, please go vote for Miggy for Player of the Month.
1: I will do it after this recording. I commit that.
0: Thank you. But yes, Phillies going to be world champions by the time you're listening to this. And Miguel Almiron, you'll still be able to vote for him. So get those votes in. Ho way to lads, ho way to guys.
1: Jesse, I know you're not the biggest sports fan, but is there anyone making memories for you right now?
3: There is. So this is very topical because as of November 1st, the United States figure skater star Andrews is the first black woman in US history to medal at the Grand Prix for figure skating, which is really exciting. She won silver. She's 21 years old, and it has never happened before for a African-American person in the grand prix so oh, that was really cool <laughs>
0: with, with a name like that too i mean it's I a whether great name figure skating or any other sport i mean the, the andrews parents called their shot there with that name
3: It's Star with two r's as well like Ooh, that's the best way that's the best way to spell that <laughs> right <laughs> uh, but yeah so that was really exciting because like i'm going to be talking about figure skating tonight and there is a lot of Prejudice in figure skating. It's it's a sport that really does not like outsiders, people who are not like expected to be in figure skating. And often the way that the judging works will really affect them. So it's it's just really exciting that so many changes have been happening over the last couple of years. And Star Jackson last year had to pull out of Worlds, which is what happens before the Grand Prix because of an injury. And so it's just really nice to see that like she came back. 21 is, like, the middle of your career, so, like, it's it's really exciting that she's able to do that and, like, really be a role model for people who might want to try figure skating in the future.
2: Well, I think that 21 is the middle of your career. As oh, yeah, we're going to talk about that As a 29-year-old right now, <laughs> I feel really, really old.
3: Yeah, we're going to talk a lot about that. Like, I don't know how much you want me to just jump into that now, but...
1: I mean, if, if that is everything about Star making memories for you right now, then you've... That's, that's you all have... I
3: really need to share about it.
1: Yeah, we don't need to bury the lead any further than that. Uh, by all means, you have come to us, the guy Bunal, today with another four-year consideration, and as we now understand it, this guy that you have brought for our consideration is a figure skater.
3: They are a figure skater. So, like James said, I I don't care about sports too much, but the one sport that I do thoroughly enjoy is figure skating. But figure skating is is a little confusing the way that the sport works. The scoring system itself is a whole thing, but I just want to talk about like how figure skating competitions work first. So there's qualifying competitions. If you win your qualifying competition, you are able to go to the national competitions. You must place in the top three in your national competitions to compete in the International Skating Union or the ISU. The ISU championships are twofold. So you have the four continents, which is North America, South America, Asia, and Oceania. Is Oceania or Oceania? I don't have to say that word.
1: Oceania.
3: Oceania, European continent and African continents are not allowed to compete in the four continents. Hmm. And then there's the European competitions. That one is self-explanatory. There is none specifically for African continents.
1: <laughs> just about to ask. So you just don't get to figure skate in Africa.
3: Not in the ISU. They have their own part that can then eventually go to Worlds. Worlds is the most important part of figure skating. It is what everything leads up to for like the general skater. So the Worlds competitions also has the junior world competitions and the uh, world synchronized skating competitions, but just worlds is what everyone's going for. The top six winners of worlds can then go to the grand prix, the most elite skaters in the entire world. So it is, it has gone from your city to your state, to your country, to worlds. And now we're at the grand prix. So that star Andrews won. This is like incredible. Like she's beat hundreds of other skaters to get there, to get the silver medal. So she is the second best skater in the world essentially
1: and so just to understand in theory were there a very good african skater they could make it to that grand prix because that's not yeah. just ISU at that point
3: right so the the grand prix is still ISU but there's a whole lot of other competitions there's BISU i'm just talking about like the ones that people will know about like these are the ones you'll see on tv and there have been other like black skaters. She's just the first United States skater that was African American that medaled at competition. So that's why she's special. But all of this world's Grand Prix, all this has nothing to do with the Olympics, which is its own track that sometimes skaters will also be doing uh, that has its own scoring system. This also does not include showcases, performances, or tours, which don't happen until you go pro. You cannot compete in any of the other competitions if you are a professional.
2: This is complicated.
3: It's very complicated, which is why of my eight page document, one full page is dedicated
1: to this. <laughs> There's like no professional skater is competing whatsoever.
3: It's, it's just a lot. There's a lot of things happening here. So some terms that I'm not going to bring up much, but I do want you guys to be aware of are the, the PCS and the TES, which are how things are scored. It's the program component scores and the technical element scores. A score for figure skating is based on a judging panel of usually nine people. They are judging on two things. They're judging on your program and they're judging on your elements. So your program is the dance that you're doing. It's it's every step of the way, which you have choreographed at the beginning. You hand that in essentially as a piece of paper. Each move inside of that is scored. There's a new scoring system since 2004. We're going to be talking about the 80s and 90s. So we're going to be on the 6.0 scoring system. So they could be rated up to 6.0. That's a perfect score for any of those components. The judges are going along your program and there are parts of your program that can be added onto, but you can't take things away. So while you're doing it, they could go for, let's say, an axle, which is a type of spin that you're jumping into, and then add a quad to it, which is a four rotation spin. That would make your points higher. So you're Full, as much as you can possibly do that is what you've handed into them and you're trying to get as close to perfect as possible when skaters are competing one skater could have a perfect score uh, on their sheet like they've gone through their entire thing it's perfect but another skater who did not score as perfectly could still beat them because their baseline score could be higher and they could have hit that even though they didn't add anything their numbers could still be higher so you can like kind of figure that out from the beginning of like okay that person can only score, let's say, 100 points. Like that is their highest they could make by adding everything. Mine, my lowest score would be 100 points. I could get up to 300 points by adding X, Y, Z. So there's a game that's being played as that as well. You might have skaters that are at different levels, even though they're competing against each other. So there's a lot of things you have to be aware of. The other thing is judges can be voting based on bias for costume, technical element, the way that their bodies are landing on the ice, like there's so many things that are happening that you have to both be respectful of the judges while you're on the ice. So how you're landing, if you're smiling at them when you're finishing, if you're (laughs) facing the correct direction, there are many things (laughs) that you have to be aware of while you're skating. When people are skating, they're thinking about the edge of their skate. So their skate blade is an upside down U. There's an inside blade and an outside blade. Depending on which blade edge you land on is what the type of land it is, so what kind of spin it is. So like a flip takes off from the back inside edge, but the toe loop starts from the back of the outside edge on the front foot. So <laughs> you have to really be aware of where your feet are and how your body is moving at all times because you might fumble and land on the wrong foot and it's changed what your score is then because it's changed the type of move you've done. So that's a lot. <laughs> uh so that's just kind of like the baseline I wanted to give you before I really jump into the story I would like to tell you because I know figure skating is something that people like to watch, like they see it, but they don't it's very always pretty. Know. Yeah. Yeah. But they like I, I saw something yesterday when I was doing on my research. someone's like, yeah, I don't really know anything about skating. Like I'll be watching the Olympics and she's like, Wow, that was so beautiful, they're so graceful, and the judges are like trash horrible (laughs) you're like well geez (laughs) that was always the issue with
2: uh jason brown right where everyone thought beautiful it's beautiful but because he didn't do all the jumps and stuff and just focused on a beautiful program he always scored pretty low
3: and it also has to do with because like some of these skaters they're watched by the judges all the way through from their national competition if they're someone that's like hey this someone's going to be promising and they think they're going to make it to worlds. So they'll watch them all the way through. And if they think they can do something and they don't do it, they'll lose points. Like, even if it was never in their choreography, <laughs> like, the judges just be like, you should have added that. No more points for you. So it can be a lot. I'm going to start telling my story now. So figure skating comes in many forms. Speed, dance, syn- synchronized pairs, and singles being the main competitive form. Each rely on a scoring system that starts from the moves that you're planned, modified, and completed. Then costumes, artistry, and ability. Your planned program has the highest number of available points. And if you make all of the moves you've planned, you can go up or down depending on how closely you stick to the program. Everything else is based on judges. And many times you can lose points because of personal bias. For example, French figure skater. Apologies if I don't say her name right. It's Surya, S-U-R-Y-A, Bonlay, or Bonay, B-O-N-A-L-Y. She is a black athlete famous for doing an illegal backflip on the ice. So she she would literally do backflips while she was ice skating, but she was landing on two feet. And by landing a jump on two feet, it becomes an illegal move. And so she was warned at the 1998 Olympics to not do this move. The judges already didn't like her. She's a French skater. She's black. She doesn't look like the other skaters because she has like a stronger build. She was already losing points for stuff. And they were like, do not do this backflip. It is an illegal move. You cannot do it. And she was like, ha ha, I'm going to do it anyway. (laughs) But she landed on one foot specifically. She already knew that they were going to take points away from her, that she wasn't going to win. She was already sixth place. She ended up falling to 10th place. One of the reasons is because when she landed on her one foot and finished her entire showcase, she was facing the audience. She put her back to the judges, which is completely unacceptable, but she knew she wasn't going to win. So despite the legality of the move, she was still scored way lower than everyone else, causing her to lose.
0: Yeah, just the yeah. the the parallel that comes to mind for me immediately was like the whole Simone Biles controversy.
3: Yeah.
0: In gymnastics at the most recent Olympics where they're like nobody else is able to do that, so that's oh, you illegal. Can't do it. Which yeah. is like and like there's
1: we, we can't give you the points that's actually worth because there's no way that anyone else can beat you then. And it's like, yeah, no, that's the point. That's why I would yeah, do like, these things.
3: And, and like, the thing is, like, with that particular skater, it's like her athleticism was way ahead of everyone else. So her athletic score versus her artistry score was going to be skewed, which is why they do it that way, because a skater might be super athletic, but not super artistic. And so the idea is that those two scores would even out in the long run, but they just kind of used it against her in that particular case. And that's just talking about women's. We're mostly going to be focusing on men's skating and men's single skating in the last few years has really been about who can land the most quads. The quad is like what all men's skaters are trying to do. Quad spins are when they have five full rotations which is outrageous. Like it just be able to spend that much. I know it's quad and it's not four, <laughs> I can see okay. James's face. Thank
1: for addressing, yeah. Thank you for addressing that.
3: It's you land on the fifth one. So American men skater, Nathan Chen is kind of like the skating darling of men's skating right now. And he is like the quad King. He is able to land more quads in competition than anyone else ever has in competition. He has landed a toe loop, a sow cow, a loop, a flip and a Lutz each having five rotations. Plus, in 2018, he was able to add eight single quad rotations across the ice during his program. That is insanity. To do one in competition 20 years ago was almost unheard of. Women don't really do quads traditionally, but men are getting this stronger and stronger every year. And now it's basically become like, who can do the most? There have been some juniors in national competitions that are getting close. And in some practices, there are videos of people landing more than eight quads in a program, but no one's done it in competition except for Nathan.
1: It feels so, like overall this Chapman used to be the only person throwing 100 miles an hour, and now, like, you suck if you're coming out of the bullpen and you can't hit 100 miles an hour.
3: Yeah, it's like the the level of sport has changed over time so much. Like, if you look at some of, like, video from early figure skating Olympics, they're doing, like, cute little waltz jumps and they're getting gold medals. <laughs> like, it is, it is nothing, like, it was... 70 years ago besides just the athleticism of the quads that are being added the artistry of men's skating has really grown over time from the music to the costumes to the types of moves that have been added much has changed since the first figure skating world championship which is uh happening in 1896 was the very first one and a lot of that has to do with the person i'm going to talk about today who is rudy galindo he was born September 7th, 1969. It's like nice, 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 (laughs) nice, He is both a Virgo and Latino. Uh, Virgos are generous and willing to help others. And this is probably also true of Latinos. I'm not, I don't want to make any assumptions.
2: (laughs) I'm glad we're finally getting into horoscopes on this podcast. (laughs) It's it's, It's perfect.
3: It's necessary. So his parents were Jess and Margaret. He's Mexican on his father's side. And he's the youngest of three with an older brother named George and a sister named Lara. So uh, figure skating, it's a very expensive sport. Besides being a little bit confusing about the scoring system and all of the judging that has to go into it, it can cost anywhere between $35,000 and $50,000 a year to be a competitor. <laughs> a year? A year, a year. That's <laughs> It is insane. an incredibly expensive sport. it I tried to look it up and see, like, what's the most expensive sport? And everything says hockey but I'm not sure if these articles were even looking at figure skating as a sport. So that's gonna account for coaches, club fees, ice time, travel, costumes, choreography, skates, training, and more, because there's a lot more that goes into it besides those things. But it can be anywhere between thirty five thousand and fifty thousand dollars a year to be a figure skater.
2: Yeah, that's that's crazy. Hockey is like ten grand a year for high school hockey. I'm sure if it gets if you do travel stuff, it gets more than that, but I don't think it gets to that much.
3: It's, yeah, it's, it's kind of outrageous. So competition level figure skaters typically have eight levels before they start to learn jumps, um, but some jumps cannot be taught without custom skates. To level up in skating, you have to have custom skates because of the chance of in- injury to both your feet and your ankles when landing. So custom skates can cost anywhere between $800 and $1,000 for the boot and another $1,000 for the blades. Those have to be sharpened and often replaced because the ankle support has to keep some kind of rigidity. This has caused many skaters to quit skating before they even move on to the free skate level. This is a sport not many people can do, and many families have to sacrifice to let their children continue to perform. This was very true for Rudy's family. Rudy has described his family as living in extreme poverty. His father would use his entire paycheck from truck driving to pay for skating. Eventually, that led to them moving into a trailer. They had an option to buy a house, but they used all of their savings to let Rudy and his older sister skate. Everything in this family went into his career. Rudy was very close to his family, and they were very supportive, both financially and emotionally. Rudy said in his autobiography, Icebreaker, that Laura often drove him to practice years before she was old enough to have a driver's license. Laura gave up her career in part to support Rudy and to work to support their family. She acted as his coach during the 1996 championship season. Back to their childhood, Laura started skating first. They're from San Jose, and their parents didn't want them hanging out on the streets, so they signed her up for ice skating classes, and Rudy would go with her. And he fell in love with it and started taking classes as well. In 1982, he started skating with his first coach, whose name was Jim Hulick. He is a former champion, and he was the best coach in the Bay Area. He had his first competitions as a single junior skater. He did really well. He was showing like great talent and drive. And like everyone was just like, this is going to be something special, which is why Lara really would step back from skating later on. The whole family really supported him for this. When he was 13, he met Christy Yamaguchi, a known name. (laughs) If you know anything about figure skating at all, you might have heard her. You remember that guy. (laughs) So he was 13 and she was 11 when they met. She was skating at the same ice skating club as him and when rudy was 13 he was watching his sister skate pairs in her class and pairs sure you can figure that out, is when two people are skating together it is not the same as ice dance which is another facet of figure skating pairs is much more about the athleticism but it still has the artistry and it's just not dancing so he was seeing how well christy was skating on the ice and he approached his coach jim and was like i want to skate pairs with christy The coach didn't take it seriously at first because uh, Rudy is pretty short. (laughs) Uh, He would only grow up to be about uh, five, six on my paper. It's a short (laughs) King. So he didn't think that he could be a pair skater. You need to be really strong because you're going to be throwing these girls across the ice. But because Rudy and Christy were, were almost the same height, they were able to do things that other people were not able to do. So Rudy really persisted in trying to convince his coach that this was an idea. and, Jim would eventually arrange a meeting with Christy's mom. Rudy would say in his autobiography that single skating is extremely isolating. And I thought it might be fun to work with someone, especially someone who was as full of energy and charm as Christy. So they skated together a lot through their teen years in high school. They were skating six to eight hours every single day before and after school, but Rudy would eventually stop going to traditional high school because the principal wouldn't accommodate his practices so he would hire a tutor to come two days a week to teach him between practices. He got his GED. As a skating pair, they perform side-by-side jump sequences, which as a difficulty like is not done. It's a triple flip into a triple toe. So that is three rotations one way in jumps, and then three more rotations the other way, happening three times. It has not been seen at all since no one has done this since then. They would win the 1986 Junior National Champions in Paris. Oh, sorry, U.S. National Champions in 1986. 1988 was the World Junior Champions. In 1989, they won the U.S. National Champions again, but things started to get really hard during that time. Uh, Rudy was incredibly creative. He was driving a lot of their routines and throwing himself into Paris skating with everything he had. But the first signs of trouble uh, were with Christy's mother, Carol. She was concerned that Their partnership might not last because Rudy was short.
1: (laughs) Rudy's shortness was what allowed them to do these routines that are winning.
3: But that's in juniors. So when they were getting to the adult pairs, there was some concern that they wouldn't be able to hold up the same way. So to convince the Yamagushis that he was completely dedicated to pairs, he actually gave up his careers as a single skater. Most of the time, pair skaters are also skating as singles and winning competitions. And he wanted them to know, like, no, I'm very dedicated to this. So he gave up that career. Things continued to be very tough for him, though. Uh, In 1989, Jim Hewlett would die. AIDS was affecting so many people during the 1980s and entire communities were lost. Uh, Officially, Jim Hewlett died from colon cancer at age 38. But it was cancer that was associated with HIV. He coached Rudy and Christy in the national championships only 16 days before his death uh, and checked himself into the hospital soon after that. This is from his obituary. He had said that the highlight of his coaching career occurred at the Baltimore Arena when his 17 and 19 year old students skated a near perfect long program to win the national senior pairs championship. And then he was gone. And the skaters had to move past this. It would obviously rattle the pair and cause changes in their dynamic. This was like the first major tragedy. For Rudy, he already had a pretty tough teenage years living in poverty, being supported by his parents as much as they could. His mother was dealing with a lot of mental health struggles and losing a coach that you spent 12 hours a day with every single day. He was living with the Yamaguchis at this point most of the time. And this was like one of the biggest male figures in his life. And now he's gone. And he was gone very young. He's only 38 years old. But right after that, they would win again in the 1990s United States National Championships for pairs. But soon, the two would end their Paris careers together so that Christie could focus on singles in preparation for the 1992 Olympics. Rudy was devastated and unfocused. He had given up his career, mostly because he had hoped to compete in the Paris competition at the Olympics. But Because he had sacrificed his singles, he was not in form to compete in the Olympics. He didn't qualify. It would be very difficult for Rudy to find another Paris partner at his age and stage in his career. So his only choice was to return to singles if he wanted to continue skating competitively. He would hire a new singles coach. His name was Rick Ingeleus, I-N-G-L-E-S-I. Can I say that?
1: Your yeah. guess is as good as mine, but it sounds right. I would no, assume it's right. in yeah. Just a guess, just a guess.
0: Okay,
3: well, he began working on his triples jumps again because you don't really do triple jumps in pairs. You do the paired jumps like I was talking about, but the triple jumps are what, Pretty much all men are focusing on before they started focusing on quads close to the 2000s. In 1993, his father dies of a heart attack. And in 1994, his older brother, George, would die from complications of HMV. He was working really hard, but the tragedy of losing both his father and brother so quickly were just in the forefront of his mind. And he would finish seventh at the 1994 Nationals and eighth at the 1995 Nationals. He does not qualify for Worlds those years. He was completely frustrated with his inability to finish in the top three, and he considered quitting the sport entirely. Rudy's coach had learned from the skating judges that they disapproved of the fact that he was effeminate and that was affecting his scores. Judges at the time are going to be incredibly biased towards that. He does not look like the traditional male figure skater, like all American. He is Mexican. He's short. He had long hair at the time and earrings, and they did not approve of that at all. In 1995 his second coach died. Rudy would say in his autobiography that he was the kind of guy that was up at three in the morning. He did his workout at home. He cleaned his house. He went grocery shopping and he was on the ice at 530 in a remarkably good mood. It was no secret that Rick was gay, which was important to me. You spend a lot of time with your coach and I wanted to be completely comfortable with the people around me. So he has now lost his first coach to colon cancer, influenced by HIV, his father to a heart attack, his brother to complications from HIV, and now his second coach to HIV. Um, okay, so you have answered that question then? Yes, yes. This one was another. So after losing so many people that he loved, Rudy was struggling. Um, figure skating is a career for the young, and at 25 years old, Rudy's body and soul were feeling the effects of the daily stress and pressure. He would take an eight-month break. Taking off any time from skating can have a huge detrimental effect the way your body changes when you don't skate can preclude you from skating at the same level. Even taking a summer off could completely change a career. After finishing eighth at the 1995 U.S. Championship, Rudy would take an eight-month break, his family's history of mental health issues catching up to him and causing him to fall into a depression. But things started to get a little bit better because in 1996, Rudy found out that the United States Championship was going to be happening in San Jose in his hometown. And He really wanted to take this chance and opportunity to perform in front of his mom. She was not able to travel anymore, and it was really important to him. And so after he took this eighth-month break, his sister would take over as his coach. So Laura was there supporting him again. About six weeks before the U.S. Nationals, Rudy comes out in Sport Columnist's book. Uh, Her name is Christine Brennan. Her book's called Inside Edge, A Revealing Journey into the Secret World of Figure Skating. He becomes the first openly gay men's champion. He is the first figure skater to still be in competition that comes out. So he is like the gay figure skater at this point. And people were really concerned about this. Um, In his autobiography, Icebreaker, he shared that he was oftentimes unmotivated due to the lack of support from his fellow skaters, judges, and skating officials. He didn't fit the mold of the all-American figure skating hero. Having some coaches try to dull his sparkle by cutting his hair and giving him more conservative costumes... But when Rudy came out as gay, many thought this was a mistake in a sport that is described as clean cut and all American. Rudy would say, I guess I was just ahead of my time, but I wanted to be me and to be out of the box, to be over the top. And some judges back then, well, they wanted a certain type of skater.
1: I'm glad he said ahead of his time because like, not that I know enough about figure skating to like make giant sweeping remarks but certainly i would say the way that figure skating is generally viewed now in terms of its flamboyance and not all Americanness, and frankly it's homosexuality what i want Just to think of johnny Weir, yeah who yeah, so- fucking rocks but mm-hmm. like is clearly a
3: very gay man so i think what what thing i i would say to think about that so i went to an all-women's college. And the joke about that is like, you go there to find a husband later, or you're a lesbian. (laughs) And so there is a huge push at women's colleges to not be gay, like, don't talk about it, like, because there's so much of a stigma to it. And I think because figure skating was seen as so feminine, male figure skaters tried very hard to push the masculinity aspect. They would not really wear sparkly costumes. They would very much be almost in suits. Like they're, they would really try to be like a manly man. <laughs> they
1: got me um, butchered up. Yeah,
3: it's actually like hilarious to really
2: think about it that way in, in, in those mm-hmm. terms. Like you really ha- yeah. you have to offset what we're doing. I'm not, I'm not gay man, what are you talking
1: about? Yeah, My shirt that's I mean, says i not gay. Like why are you asking all these questions about it?
2: Just
0: end every performance by using your skate to shotgun a beer. Exactly.
3: (laughs) Um, And like, I think there's another thing with uh, skaters in general. So like you're skating on the same rinks that hockey players are going to be playing at. You don't even have the same type of skates as them. So it's like, you can't even relate the way that you're skating to someone who plays hockey, which is extremely masculine. So there's like this weird world that you're both living in the same building, but you are not the same type of person. And so trying to push that aspect of yourself really meant something to people. So he comes out right before the 1996 U.S. world champion, San, San Jose. And this was like a huge deal. So he's 26 years old. He's incredibly old for a figure skater, which I know we were saying before, like, I'm 31. I started figure skating at 25. So it's like your body is changing. You're holding your weight in different places. He was like, this is probably going to be my last one. I want to do it in front of my mom. I want to do it in my hometown. And it's in the ice room that he grew up learning skating at. So it was like really important to him. He didn't have like unrealistic expectations. He had taken almost a full year off, but he had hoped to place in the top five so that he'd be on TV. That was literally it. So in competitions, you have two programs. You have your short program and your long program, which is also sometimes called your free skate. They're usually both to some song. Your choreography has something to do with the music, like you're dancing to it. Short programs are usually around two minutes. Long programs can be up to seven. That is an incredibly long time to be on the ice. It is very tough on your body. And some competitions make you do them back to back. Nationals usually doesn't. So he had done a really clean short program. Like he had hit most of his stuff. He performed to Swan Lake, but he was in third place. Like it was clean, but it was just, it was fine. Like he wasn't wowing anybody too much, but the crowd was really excited. It's like hometown boy. Like they were like really rooting for him. Todd Eldridge he was like the most traditional male skater like of 1996 like he was what everybody looked at like that's what a male skater should be he's very traditionally masculine he's super tall at 58 but like, so like you know he's just a really great skater he actually briefly coached Rudy during that time period after his last coach died tried to masculine him up a little bit he was the one that made him cut his hair but it just wasn't working out and so Todd was leading after the long program. He like was at first place, but his performance didn't have as many difficult triple jumps. Rudy's had like a bunch of triple jumps planned into it. Eldridge's did not. In particular, Rudy had two triple-triple combinations. So it was a 3 jump into a three-jump, essentially. So those combinations are back-to-back. You can't waver. You have to land them. And remember, you're landing on one foot. So you have to really plant your skate into the ice. That would make his program more technically difficult than Todd's. And if he could skate a clean program, he could take the lead. So he performed to, is it, is it Ava Maria? Or what am talking about? Ave Maria, I believe. How do you say it? Ave Maria. Ave Maria. He would perform to Ave Maria for his exhibition, Free Skate Program. This is from his autobiography again. As I approached the takeoff point, I lifted my arms and jumped. Three and a half revolutions and a spin seconds later, I landed smoothly facing backwards and then took off again on my toe of my skate for the triple toe loop. Spin, spin, spin. The audience roared so loud I could hardly hear the music. As I landed, I thought, that was way too easy. Rudy's flawless performance led to a high technical mark and two perfect six scores for his artistic style. So thinking back to when we talked about the scoring system, before 2004, it is out of six. And of the nine judges, two of them gave him a perfect score for his artistry. Everyone else gave him between a 5.7 and a 5.9. This was an outrageous score. When he came off the ice from this historic winning free skate, he yelled out, "I love you, Dad. I love you, George, Jim, Rick." He was calling out to the four men who he had loved the most. Makes me cry every time. I wa- I watched the performance right before we got on, and I'm just like crying. <laughs> A New York Times reporter described it as one of the greatest upsets ever accomplished in American skating. Ann Killian, a sports columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle, said, I think one reason why he skated with such joy and freedom that night was because he had already been through so much. It seemed like he was happy with who he was, and he was energized by skating in his hometown. With this win, he also became the first Mexican-American national champion. NBC News reported that he is the United States' most decorated Latino figure skater. He also becomes the oldest figure skater to ever win the u.s nationals in 70 years the last time it happened was in 1951 so he did qualify for worlds in 1996 and he took home bronze (laughs) he's still doing great uh and then he decided to retire from competition he became a media darling and he went pro Um, going pro in figure skating means you get to now do dances, tours, competitions that don't result in prizes, but have more to do with just your performance. And so he starts to go on tour with Tom Collins champions on ice. And that made a lot of decisions for him. A lot of people were very surprised. He just won nationals, he got bronze and world like you're going to go to the Olympics, but he decided that uh, he wanted to opt out of the Olympics, mostly because of financial reasons. He had been supported so thoroughly by his family, but his father was dead, his brother was dead, his sister was spending all of her money to support his skating career and their mother, and he knew if he went pro, he would be able to support them in ways that he could never do before. He went on a world tour with Champions on Ice, and he said, my family sacrificed so much, and I wanted to be able to provide for them and do wonderful things for them. He publishes that autobiography in 1997. It's called Icebreaker. And things started to feel brighter in his professional career. He continued to skate and perform after this book came out. And on December 12th, 1998, where he became the first skater broadcast on a U.S. television network doing a specifically gay themed program. (laughs) He performed to over the rainbow. He used a sequined rainbow flag as part of his costume and sports commentator Dick button explained on air, pretty matter of factly that this was the symbol of the gay and lesbian movement. (laughs) And just, if you look it up, it is very funny. He's just like, Just very, like, monotone.
2: I would have loved it if it didn't explain why it was very gay and just said, trust (laughs) us, it was very gay. And then everyone just had to imagine, okay, what is this very (laughs) gay program?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, a rainbow-themed Judy Garland performance commentated by Dick Button is pretty gay.
3: Um, And we love that. And we love that. And we love that for him. And he really leaned into it. Um, in 1998, he had an exhibition program to a village people medley, explicitly prefacing his sexual orientation. He skated to In the Navy, Macho Man and YMCA. It was a celebration with deliberately flouncy pirouettes and unashamed femininity. I love uh, it. He on...
2: had he, been through so much shit. Be yeah. you. Be you. I love Be it. you.
3: Absolutely. So on January 12th, 1999, Rudy would have a cameo as himself with lines on the sitcom Will and Grace, with a plot line centering on an evening with champions on ice. The episode was called Will on Ice. Will's friends bond over their favorite skaters, Michelle Kwan and Rudy, whom one character calls my hero. He's the gay one. To which another character responds, one? (laughs) In the year 2000, after a handful of beautiful and successful years, Rudy was forced to withdraw from the Goodwill Games after coming down with viral pneumonia. This led to Rudy's diagnosis of HIV. He was devastated. After losing so many people to this disease, Rudy told the world he would become a spokesperson to what someone living with HIV can be, and he thrived. So, James, you'll love this. Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi, on behalf of the House of Representatives, presented Rudy with the U.S. flag that had recently flown over the Capitol building and declared him a national treasure. (laughs) So Rudy would break his femur on his left side in 2003 Mm. and was forced to undergo a hip replacement surgery. It was very tough on his body and it would take years to fully recover, but he would continue to perform with champions on ice until they went out of business in 2007. During that time, in 2006, he was a judge on WeTV's Skating's Next Star, which was created by his former partner, Christy Yamaguchi. Currently, he is a coach. Among his students is Christy's daughter, Emma. Christy has said, my daughter loves working with him. So it's like our lives have come full circle. In a way, he is like an extended family member. I'm very proud of him because he has never been afraid to be who he was. He's always been like, this is who I am. So why pretend? Rudy was inducted into the San Jose Hall of Fame in 2011 and the U.S. Figure Skating Hall of Fame in 2012. In 2014, in the Winter Olympic Games, there were no openly gay male skaters. But in 2022, there were eight across the singles, pairs and dance categories. Rudy has said that he feels he paved the way for other Olympic skaters like Johnny Weir and Adam Rippon, and skier Gus Kenworthy by forcing the sport to acknowledge LGBT athletes. Rudy coming out was especially courageous because under the old scoring system, figure skating was a much more subjective sport than it is today. Judges should score him lower because they were uncomfortable with his identity. Apologies if I don't pronounce this name right. It's French. Goulian scissor. A French ice dancer said on Instagram after Russian judges docked points for him looking cold with a female partner. Don't let ignorant people tell you how much of a man or a woman you are. What makes you a man, a woman, a non-binary or anything in between has nothing to do with your sexual orientation and even less with your abilities, your value, your skill or the level of respect that you deserve. Him and his partner, Gabriella, went on to become the 2022 Olympic champions. Today, you can find Rudy on Instagram and Twitter where he is lovely and supportive to any skater he comes across, including me when I was learning to skate a few years ago. If you do follow him on Twitter, you will get some amazing motivation, like in his tweet from December 23rd, 2021, just getting the three B's today, blood work, Botox, and boosted. (laughs) (laughs) And that is my entire story. (laughs) (laughs) about.
1: It's a very strong closing argument.
0: I have to say. (laughs) Jesse, I'm not sure how much research you did on...
3: I did like three hours of research.
0: <laughs> well, specifically for Rudy, absolutely. But into what really you know, gets our guy gears going. We have the first guy to do something. We have an icon here. We have overcoming personal tragedy. We have the partnering with another well-known guy. This is like the mm-hmm. great guy pair. We have the crossover into the entertainment industry with the Will and Grace appearance. I mean, you're, you're taking all of our boxes here. <laughs>
1: um, we have the- several <laughs> tragic deaths, just like an absurd amount of deaths.
3: Yeah.
0: <laughs> and of course, for, for me specifically, any Latino guy is an automatic yes vote. Uh, so <laughs>
1: ch- This is your makeup for Scott Gomez. This is able to fill the void Shaped exactly like Scott Gomez. It turns out that 5'6 Rudy, 5'6 Rudy can fit into his name's fucking Rudy. That's
0: perfect. <laughs> I love it. My, 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 my new favorite Rudy, Rudy Rudiger, <laughs> actually turned out to be an asshole. I think it, the, the movie was kind of propaganda for Notre Dame. So Rudy
2: Galindo.
1: Rudy I'm, I'm Galindo and then Sean Aston. That's the top two movies. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we actually have to make a basement for Rudy Gobert. So low down, not even on the same scale.
1: Uh, Xavier, any any final comments or questions on your end?
2: You know what, skaters, I feel like is such an incredibly difficult sport to do, just because. Think about it, you have to start super early with an insane amount of practice. Mm-hmm. Unlike other, you know, sports, you have a very, very, very limited window most of the time. You know, Rudy showing that not always the case to do anything. But you're not actually even making money during your peak, so you have to hope that you can somehow make money afterwards, either as a coach or a choreographer. It is a thing that you can only do if you truly love to skate. It's extremely hard to have any sort of tangible benefit. 99.9% of skaters will never win anything, and they're not Mm -hmm. making money. It's not like you know, the regular guy basketball player who still makes millions of dollars as the ninth man off the bench, so I do really love recognition to figure skaters and other sports that have similar levels of dedication i i, I really I really liked uh, hearing about Rudy
1: I also liked very much that we had the circular sacrifice for a family. I love that that it came back around after the dad gave up the whole paycheck after the sister gave up her career. He comes up and he, he gives up the 1996 Olympics which he was 98, sorry, 90. And he was guaranteed a spot, right? Like if he wanted to Basically. do it, he could have done it. And, and he passed that up then to support the family. Cause he'd already had his moment. Fucking great. That was an excellent story. God damn it. Incredible.
3: <laughs> and I, I do really recommend looking up his 1996 performance or the other ones that I talked about, really any of his performances, his costuming is always incredible. There is no one at that time that had the strength, the flexibility, or just body control that he does. A good skater should make it look easy. Uh, when I was learning how to skate, they always said, you should look like you're gliding on water, and you should look like you, your body movements are in water. And he he is never rattled. It is wild to see someone like that skate. Seeing the skaters now, like the there's a few male skaters now that are absolutely incredible. But it is very a very different sport today. The judging system has completely changed. The way costuming is much more flamboyant than it was in the 1990s. So just like looking up his performances, I I really do recommend that.
1: And props again for him making skating flamboyant. God, I can't picture what figure <laughs> skating would look like if they weren't being flamboyant. Boring. <laughs> very strong. But. Well, Diaz, Xavier, I know about you guys, but it sounds to me like the guy Buñuel may have reached a decision.
0: I I mean, I don't. Is is there any? Is there any more to even say?
1: I believe it's call of acclamation.
0: So via call of acclamation, thank you, Jesse, for for opening our eyes to the icon, Will and Grace guest star. (laughs) The I'm not going to say better half. I will say half of the pair with uh, Christy Yamaguchi now to be inducted into our illustrious Hall of Guy, Val, Joe, Rudy, Belindo, Welcome into the Hall of Guy.
3: Yay.
1: (laughs) Incredibly well done, my love. It's been an absolute joy having you on. But man, I guess I got to get to making dinner for us soon. (laughs) I mean, we got the Phillies to watch. Do we have anything else coming up? That we need to think about sports wise. Well,
0: well j- just again to reiterate, the Phillies will be done before anybody listens to this. True. Yes. No. no. Phils in seven. And yet, yet again, I'm calling my shot. Congratulations, as you are listening to this, to the 2022 World Series champion, Philadelphia Phillies. It was really crazy in that Game Six when that one thing happened, and I think we all know what the key ah, moment was. Other one. Was. But holy shit, what a performance. Congratulations, Phillies.
1: (laughs) Diaz, can I ask you for one true called shot? I I wanna see it when the Phillies win. Game seven, bottom of the ninth. What pitcher is on the mound for the Phillies as the final out is recorded? I'm gonna say that Alvarado
0: and Dominguez are gonna be used in high leverage spots earlier in the game. They will not be available. Give me Aaron Nola out of the pen getting his redemption for shit starts. Aaron Nola gets the last out and Alec boom is going to fucking love this place because he gets the game winning RBI.
1: <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Because I mean, it's
0: listen, last game of the season. Brent can't hold anything back now. <laughs>
2: is ever you got anything? Something you won't like because it's about the Spurs. So we can talk about this off air.
1: Well, if that's the case, then let's get off of here and, and make me
2: more miserable about the Spurs. I'm James. I'm the not this special guest, Xavier.
3: Am I the other special guest?
2: <laughs> You're the true special guest.
3: I'm the true special guest, Jesse.
0: I'm Diaz. And as famous Philadelphian Benjamin Franklin once said, tell me and I forget. Teach me and I remember. Involve me and I got. <laughs>